is lit. The breakthrough billion dollar podcast where we take a piece of literature and compare and contrast it with its film or television adaptation. My name is Danny, the self-appointed film expert. And my name is Laura, she, her, and I'm the self-appointed lit expert. And today on the pod, we are covering Dope Sick. That was my best Richard Sackler impression. How'd I do? It's pretty good. It's pretty damn close. At least to uh, Michael Silberg's version. <laughs> our, our current favorite actor. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's up there. Yeah. And today is a special episode because we have a returning guest. Someone very near and dear to our hearts. Unfortunately, you can't get rid of him. <laughs> he can't Vice get rid of us. Yeah. <laughs> He's bound to us for life. That's marriage, baby. We're not married to him, but uh, he is my father-in-law, Pete Sealing. Dr. Pete Sealing. Excuse me. Pete, say hi. Hi, everybody. You might recognize Pete's voice all the way back in episode 15 or 16. Uh, it was our coverage on There Will Be Blood. And Oil. Um, yeah. So I actually wrote this down. Now we've had my dad on for two episodes that covered two of the most exploited and profitable industries in the U.S., which were oil and now pharmaceuticals. So <laughs> yeah, you have your Good niche. statistics. Yeah. Yeah. What's next? Yeah. Automobiles? Yeah, maybe. Even autos were even in oil a little bit, but um, yeah. I don't know. Maybe the banking industry. Right. <laughs> Bitcoin. Finance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The big short. We can do the bit. Big short. Oh, that's another one. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So, Pete, for those who didn't listen to your There Will Be Blood episode, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself before we get started? Yeah, of course. So, I am Laura's and Robin's dad. Have been Laura's dad for almost three decades, if you can believe that. Coming up. (laughs) And, of course, married to your mother, Rebecca. And I am a scientist. I have worked both in academic science as well as um, industry. So I know a little bit about what's going on, but certainly not at the scale of what we're talking about today. Right. Right. That's specifically why we had you on too, to talk about the science of the industry. Because as much as I work in the industry, I work more in clinical quality and you work more in R&D, which we certainly hear a lot of in (laughs) the book and the movie or in the show. Um, And I have some expertise because I, and the number one Michael Keaton fan. That's Ooh, true. I don't know. I'm pretty up there too. <laughs> yeah. I'm a big fan. Oh, he's so good in this. Well, we have you to thank for covering this show and book uh, because you initially watched it when it came out back in 2021. And we had this on our list for almost a year and we finally now tackled it. We finally penciled you back in. We've had a busy, a busy year, a lot of great guests, but we're happy to have you back. Um, So Dope Sick, yeah, both the book and the movie explores and explains the United States opioid crisis from the perspective of Purdue Pharma, the company that brought the addictive opioid OxyContin into the marketplace, the lawyers and government officials who investigated the company's misleading branding of the drug, and the doctors and patients who bore the brunt of OxyContin's devastating effects. The show is based on the book Dope Sick, Dealers, Doctors, and the Drug Company That Addicted America by Beth Macy, published in 2018. 
And yeah, the show was created by Danny Strong, the actor turned showrunner. Mm-hmm. What a lighthearted, fun, easy breezy <laughs> show and, and book. Yeah, yeah, topic. No, this is really heavy stuff, but it is as fascinating as it is uh, tragic. And, and complicated. <laughs> yes, very, very complicated. Yeah, so we talked a little bit about how we landed on covering this, but why don't we jump into our journeys, because I'm sure it's going to be a pretty long episode, because there's a lot of stuff to talk about, um, this being an eight-episode miniseries. So Each episode one hour long. Yeah, they're long. Um, so, Dad, do you want to talk about what put you onto the show, and then ultimately what you thought of the book a little bit? Yeah, sure. So, uh, yes, the first encounter that I had with this piece of art was the miniseries Dope Sick. I'm a big Michael Keaton fan as well. And so when I saw that he was the star of the program, I was interested. And then, of course, again, because it's about uh, the pharmaceutical in- uh, industry, I also was interested in watching it. So I think I had watched all of the miniseries before, the, uh, before reading the book. And I listened to the audiobook. It was read by the author. Late 2021, I uh, watched the series, and then sometime in 2022, I listened to the book, and then uh, both of them, uh, are re- on repeated listening and, and watching, uh, I was able to uh, learn a little bit more and gain a little more insight. Yeah, so that's my journey. I was going to say, my dad is probably more of a Michael Keaton fan, purely because he's older than you, so he's had <laughs> more years to enjoy Michael Keaton. Sorry. Well, Pete, you want to get nuts? Let's get nuts. Um, (laughs) Do you want to go or? How many times have you seen Batman? Ooh, a few times. Although it's not one of my favorite Michael Keaton. Mostly, mostly on on TV though. Yeah, yeah, Mm, yeah. Same with Batman Returns. Which hot take? I'm not the biggest fan of that movie. I know everyone loves that, but uh... okay. uh, My journey. So. Yeah, I knew of the show through the billboards on Mm -hmm. driving through L.A. During the four-year consideration campaigns in this city, the streaming networks and regular networks, they campaign hard, like politicians, to get their shows nominated and to win. And Dope Sick was all over the streets, especially Coanga and La Brea and Sunset. To the point, if I may interrupt, to the point where I feel like Emmy season never ends. Yeah. Because literally the four-year consideration magazines and billboards never go down. Yeah. <laughs> They're always up in Los Angeles. And if it's not Emmys, it's Oscars or it's yeah. Golden Globes. Um, yeah. But for some reason, the Emmys, it just seems like there's just constantly ads and pushes for Emmys. But, but. Right. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so I didn't get around to watching the show when it first came out, but I remember you talking about it and recommending it. And I think the reason we didn't cover it was because in addition to our heavy load with the podcast already, diving into something this dark and heavy didn't seem like... Usually when we're doing episodes, we like to intercut the recording, researching, reading with lighter affair, like Pawn Stars or (laughs) Seinfeld or New Girl. Um, I'm happy, though, that we did get around to reading it because personally... Me being a film major, I was not aware, really, of the specifics of this crisis. 
I remember some details from my seventh grade health class about um, mm. Oxycontin, which is funny because that was in 2007 when the settlement deal happened. Mm -hmm. uh, so mm -hmm. that's the one marker that I have of like, oh yeah, I vaguely remember that happening and learning about that. But other than that, I, I was kind of blind to the whole opioid epidemic, where it started, the Sackler family. I didn't really know about the inner workings of the FDA until I met you, Laura, and you started working in regulatory mm -hmm. quality assurance. But yeah, so yeah, that's that's my journey. We finished the final episode last night, and uh, even though it took us a while, I think we, we found it pretty compelling. Oh yeah, agreed. Um, thank you for sharing your journeys. It's interesting though when you say that you learned about OC or Oxycontin in school because I think maybe one of the reasons that we weren't super exposed to the opioid crisis is purely because we're lucky enough to grow up in areas or in families that it just wasn't yeah. really an issue. I, I think I knew some family members who had gotten onto some narcotic painkillers, but ultimately just like did not turn into um, uh, like an, ext an extended release issue, mm. I suppose. <laughs> so I knew a little bit about opiates just because I work in pharmaceuticals and it's pretty consistently brought up as an example of why regulations have changed in the last 10 years or so. And that spans everything from marketing to approvals to black box warnings there's just a lot of things that have changed because of this kind of lightning rod situation yeah. um, that exposed a lot of the loopholes that FDA, the DEA, FBI, all of these things, kind of the fallout basically of the war on drugs. So this was the first time that I really got to dive into like the specifics of this story. And I wanted to shout out the small bookstore that we picked up, Dope Sick from it was in calistoga california because we were in napa for danny's cousin's wedding um it's really cute it's called copperfields if anyone's ever in the area but the other thing that i thought was kind of interesting before i watched dope sick and read the book i had watched sort of a true crime-esque show on netflix called the pharmacist mm -hmm. and i highly suggest if anyone is taken by this story to go check out the pharmacist because it focuses on a real pharmacist who started to notice that he was getting a lot of repeat customers who are young and seemingly in good health for very strong narcotics, specifically Oxycontin. And about 10 years before this case sort of started coming out, he was already starting to question what was going on in his area. Um, and unfortunately, what really tipped the scales in his mind was that his son died of an opiate oh, overdose. Wow. Okay. And so this is when he's really started to put the pieces together for himself. So I kind of had that like outsider specific sort of story specific um, anecdote mm -hmm. from that show. It's really, really well done if you go check that out. Yeah. Um, and so that was sort of my introduction to it before the book. And I'm still just as interested. Um, I'm still now like still searching the news for stories on the Sacklers, although they're pretty much buffered from any further 
action. As, right. as recently as the end of May, um, I did listen to an NPR update that's talked about there's basically a recent lawsuit that absolved the Sackler family from other, any further civil suits brought against them, even though there's evidence that they pushed opioids and they'll be paying a $6 billion to fund addiction recovery and research. Um, but that's basically it. That's yeah. it's really like they've buffered themselves to the point where there really will be no more civil suits or any criminal suits against them. So this the story is kind of dead um, in terms of the Sacklers, but you know here we are. It's still important to talk about certainly, um, and it's also important to talk about because we don't want it to happen again. Right. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The Sacklers might be out of any criminal litigation to their settlements, but what will forever be in the public mind is the performance by Michael Stuhlbarg, who <laughs> I recently YouTubed, uh, what does Richard Sackler sound like? Yeah. And it's pretty spot on. Oh, you really? watch the performance and you're like, this is, it's great, but it's so exaggerated and that low raspy monotone that it doesn't feel like he's a real person, but, uh, Bit of a caricature. I, yeah. Yeah. But no, that that was really him. That's evil, interesting. Evil yeah. incarnate. Yeah. Yeah, because he's made out to be as evil as anyone could be. He certainly is the the one person yeah. who you love to hate. Oh yeah. Hammer the abusers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so this is uh, continues our streak of nonfiction stories. I guess our streak was momentarily buffered by the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which as far as I know isn't based on any <laughs> real life material. But um, yeah, so for the most part, the series adapts the book pretty one-to-one, in my opinion, although there are plenty of fictional characters who are representations of either communities or specific people. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole gambit. So, Pete, I wanted to throw it over to you to talk about the first difference between the sure. book and the show or yeah. anything you wanted to discuss. Well, yeah, the first thing that I noticed in the book, well, a couple things, but one in particular, the book opens with the author, because the author is, as um, we know, is was a reporter for the Roanoke Times. I think that's the name of the newspaper. Yeah. And so she started delving into the, this topic because it was hitting her community very hard in the communities around, in, in and around Western Virginia. So the book opens with her traveling to meet a man, a young man who uh, had been in jail for several years and he was considered sort of a linchpin of the dealing of drugs in Western Virginia. Uh, his name was Ronnie Jones. And so the book opens with that. And it's and it's a effective writing because she leads up to the point where she's going to meet him. And then she pulls back and starts to tell the history of the drug. And, I, and you know, it's interesting. So the, the history of opiates is really what she covered then. And, and some of that, I think, is a little bit dry. Yes. Um, it's not. I mean, it's it's. Important and especially for someone who's an investigative reporter, I think that's a useful thing for her to put into the book. Um, I'm kind of glad that the the series just took that out altogether. Yeah. The, the, I mean, they also took out Ronnie Jones because, as far as I remember, the, he's never discussed or mentioned at all. So that's a big difference, I guess. 
uh, because there is a lot of focus on that character or that person because he's a real person. And then, like I said, to, to cover the history of opiates, um, it's, a, it's kind of a fascinating history. But again, I think it was a smart, a wise decision by the producers and, and writers and so on to take that out because it just didn't see it would have detracted, I think. Yeah, a little too in the weeds. Right. Um, I think the only way they ever touch on anything pre-1992 like two, is when they go back to the 60s and they kind of talk about how Richard Sackler's uncle Mortimer. Mortimer's dad, right. I can't Arthur. remember. Arthur. Arthur. Yeah, uncle Arthur. Arthur. Yeah. Mortimer um, was his father, I think. Yeah, so the only time they really sprinkle the history in is when they go back to the 1960s and talk about how the Sacklers started to take advantage of the lack of I guess oversight. understanding, but yeah, especially oh, oversight definitely. of how marketing of drugs period was going to get out of hand. And they saw that in the 60s and started to exploit it with things like um, what, laudanum, I think, is one of the drugs that they started marketing and misrepresenting the risks of drugs like laudanum again in the 1960s. So that's that I think that's it was an important thing to glimpse just so that we could see that this family has a history of mm -hmm. exploiting yes. loopholes, but I agree that they didn't have to go through the whole history of, yeah. of drug development. It's perfect. And you can see how either it's rich heads of companies can so easily manipulate Congress mm -hmm. and the Senate. I the mean, data. yeah, I'm so happy the show covered that because you can see real life analogies to like Facebook and TikTok, their creators coming and congressmen having no <laughs> clue what they're talking yeah, about. Right. Yeah. And Facebook even did that with its control of news and, and ads. So I, I thought that was a really haunting parallel there that the show dived into. Yeah, we're not going to be able to talk about a lot of themes. Like there's not going to be a lot of analysis that we do so much between the book and the movie because it's just straight reporting. But I think that consistent theme of people with very specific knowledge that really do know and understand the dangers of drugs or anything like you're talking about social media specifically is a really good parallel, but it's really easy to hide data. And something that my dad and I have talked about in the past is how very easily graphs can be manipulated to display data and make it look like something else is going on. And so I thought it was it was a huge swing for the show to get into the weeds that the book does too, but it's obviously easier in a book because you can kind of go into like context and history. But they did a pretty good job of doing it visually with graphs and like mm -hmm. pretty simply, like I'm sure the yeah. graphs were a little bit more complicated in turn because the graph that they show in the movie, it, it's pretty clear that they've stacked data in different ways on like an X axis. Yeah. I think visually it just makes it clear. Yeah. And if, if an FDA reviewer were sitting there truly reviewing it, I'm sure there was something a little bit more complicated going on there, but, but it, it's pretty bold to start doing like some deep data dives uh, in a mini series, a dramatic mini series, because yeah. it's not super dramatic. But I, I appreciated how like detailed they got in yeah. the in the show. Mm -hmm. As a as a scientist, yeah, that was very effective when they showed that the the graph was a logarithmic scale instead of a geometric scale, and so the the differences that they 
that that patients uh, or the the peaks and the valleys, as they mentioned, get flattened mm-hmm. when you make it a log scale, logarithmic scale. So that was very ex- effective. And you're right. I, I appreciated the fact that they went to that level, especially in the series. Yeah. Yeah. And you're highlighting one of my favorite elements of the show is taking real life threads and adding a thrilling investigative through line Mm -hmm. in the characters or the real life people of Virginia prosecutors, Rick Mountcastle played by Peter Skarsgård and uh, Randy Ramsayer played by John Hugenaker. Mm -hmm. What a, what a name. Hugenaker. Both of them sound so Dutch. Dutch. Yeah. 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 Or you're mad. I'm sorry. Dutch. You're right. Yeah, Skarsgård and Hugenaker. Yeah, Hugenaker. Well, um, here's a fun fact. Okay, oh. do you know who Peter Sarsgaard is married to? I no, do, but I don't. No, go ahead. Sure. Maggie Gyllenhaal. So oh, both really? of them have double A's in their last name. Whoa! What about that? That is so interesting. Because aren't they Dutch? Yeah, they're both. They Gyllenhaals. They yeah, I think they both have <laughs> Dutch. Uh, backgrounds but that's that's so interesting because i googled all these actors and it mm-hmm. didn't come up that he was married to maggie but i'll tell you something about john hugenacher so you guys might recognize him from commercials he does a lot of commercial work oh, and since that series i had seen him he shows up on a lot of spectrum television commercials no okay yeah and and i see him and all i can think about is Dope sick. He's because, great. And he's but he does a lot. I and mean, when I looked into his history, he's done Bud Light. He was the Bud Light King. Oh no in way. Those dilly dilly commercials. Yeah. I don't know if you no those. way. Yeah. yeah. And he's done uh, a number of he does a lot of television commercials, interestingly. So that's, obviously he's a he's a hard working actor. That's where so, a lot of working actors him. make their money is commercial yeah. work. Yes, yeah. definitely. He's yeah. one of my favorite performances in the series. And funny enough, he's one of the only actors in the principal cast who is not nominated uh, for oh, an wow. Emmy. Oh, what a yeah. bummer. Yeah, Peter Skarsgård was nominated. Uh, Caitlin De- yep. Denver, who played mm-hmm. uh, Betsy, was mm-hmm. nominated. Uh, Betsy's mom I, Mayor Winningham. Mayor yeah. Winningham was uh, was nominated. Mm-hmm. She has a few great scenes towards the back half of the the film, really uh, yeah. the series. Yeah, her character arc is pretty dynamic. It yeah. is. Yeah, it's really good. Um, speaking of nominations, by the way, I cut out the series scoreboard from a couple Emmy series cycles ago since this came out in 2021. But Dope Sick was nominated for 14 Emmys. Four other shows were nominated for 14, Mm -hmm. which were Barry, Severance, Squid Game, and then Dope Sick. All pretty good. In the same year? Yeah. Oh, okay. In the same year. And then there were actually six shows that were nominated even more than Dope Sick. Wow. Wow. Um, But it's kind of interesting to see the breakdown. Those were Succession, Mm -hmm. Ted Lasso, White Lotus, Hacks, which we need to watch, Mm -hmm. Only Murders in the Building, and Euphoria. They had more nominations. They had more nominations by... By two to ten, yeah. about. Um, okay. um, but unfortunately, Dope Sick lost most of its nominations to The White Lotus season two uh, in the limited series category. Mm-hmm. That's a it's a stacked year. Yeah, I mean, Succession, Ted Lasso, Hacks, Only Murders, like Severance, all those yeah. are Barry. Yeah, all, all phenomenal. Ozark was that year too. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah, just a really good year for for TV shows, but. Yeah, John Hugenaker and uh, Peter Skarsgård. It's one of the stories we follow through the series. And that's what I think the book 
was missing a little bit. We have the framework of the Ronnie Jones Mm -hmm. story, but really there's nothing else kind of pulling us through in terms of a narrative. I felt it was rather dry as well. Interesting, but my mind would wander since I couldn't really latch on to characters for a long period of time. No, you're definitely right, Danny. There were times, and listening to the audiobook made it particularly difficult because it's hard to refer back to a name because obviously, well, not obviously, some of the characters, I shouldn't say characters, some of the individuals who are written about who overdosed, their parents might have, their mother in particular, they often had mothers as the, um, the person advocates. that... The advocates, thank right. you. And their last name might have been different and so, or they would just refer to the child as the first name. And so it was hard to track that. Because, and sadly, there were so many right. young people who died of overdoses. So yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. And I and I all credit, again, to the creators and, and the people who made the limited series. Because I think, as you said, too, they condensed a lot of people and they condensed a lot of stories into very compelling stories. Like, you know, focusing on Betsy's story as the person who overdosed in the end. All yeah. spoilers. They made that such a compelling story. And yeah. and her parents, and I know that was a fictional story, but it certainly represented what you got from the book. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and from a personal standpoint, I also found it slightly dry. But I think she walked a good line, too, between, like, the humanist story of it, which sometimes I... I struggle with, like, I I tend to like to understand what went into a tragedy behind somebody's death yeah. more than I get compelled by, like, the person's story. So I thought she did a really good job of, like, personalizing things, but also un- explaining the setup of, like, how and why specific areas of the country were targeted right. by the Sackler yeah. family because of things like, like pain. Yeah. Um, and... and Again, there is data and evidence to show that they did that. Yeah. Um, and this is, it's so interesting to read this story in retrospect too, because a lot of what they were doing, we just didn't know. We didn't have oversight of things like medical data sharing. Yeah. And as much as we have HIPAA regulations that protect like specific things like names, addresses, medications, disease, diseases, mm-hmm. medical notes, stuff like that. They were able to data mine for bigger, sort of higher level things that just weren't regulated at the time. So like they could say like, okay, well, I don't want a patient's name. I just want to know how many patients this doctor is seeing in this area. And and so like, it's so interesting to go back and look at how they exploited those holes and like how smart they had, like people were so smart to see that those things like weren't regulated. There was no oversight. They could then become the trendsetters and that's really what they tried to do like they tried to be the experts so that they so easily could say we know more than you do trust us Mm -hmm. trust us to tell you that we're doing the right thing and i'm glad that in my admittedly short career in pharmaceuticals i think they've especially fda has come so far to focus on oversight My point is, (laughs) to back up a little bit, Beth Macy focuses a lot on the data. I think what the 
miniseries does really effectively is it takes out specific addicts and shows the spectrum of people that were targeted and victimized because something that the Sacklers kept saying was we're targeting people with legitimate pain issues. Well, that was hiding a lot of people like Michael Keaton's character as a doctor who was also susceptible because of not only his access to the drugs, but he was emotionally already very sort of worn thin. Invested. And yeah, well, oh, right, yeah. because of his, the death of his beloved wife. Mm -hmm. So again, sorry, my point kind of got away from me, but what I liked about the show was that ability to show that like there were people who had started taking it legitimately and then ended up on heroin. There were people like Dr. Phoenix who started taking because he had access and he had sort of an emotional need. And then there were addicts who just could get it, you know, and were already addicted to stuff like heroin and started taking it as either a cheaper substitute or because they liked the high in a different way. So she, the show humanized those people really well. Yeah. It's less of an adaptation and more of like additional material to expound upon Beth Macy's work, like a visual representation. We talk about this all the time, but yeah. it's one thing to read about a nonfiction story, but to actually see it, to have that you know second level, it really uh, drives home whatever point you're making. And the point that Beth Macy was making about Purdue was like if they weren't getting trust from the FDA, then they would just buy them out. They would act as their future employer, and that's what happened with a few major players in the creation and distribution of OxyContin, mm -hmm. most notably FDA examiner Curtis Wright, uh, yes. mm -hmm. who approved the first label, which said that there was a low chance of addiction. Mm -hmm. Less than 1%. I, yeah, I love that data point, how Beth Macy drives that home, and they really brought it to light, too, well in the, in the show. Yeah, yeah, they, they spend... A lot of time trying to understand where that data came from. Yeah. And they finally found it, but it took, they had to uncover a lot of stones. They had to roll over a lot of stones to get, to get there. That was, yeah, again, a very impressive thing because as you may know, in a scientific journal like the New England Journal, which is, you know, the finest uh, medical journal in, in, in a lot of ways in the world, a letter, which is what was published, the, the, doctor who didn't even know it was being used for all those purposes, he wrote a letter and he apparently wrote lots of letters to the journal. And in this case, it was a letter about using opioids, opioids in a hospital setting, so on and so forth. But the, the key point I'm trying to make is that a letter like that isn't peer reviewed. Yes. It will, it, now, the, the editors have to look at it and they can decide to publish it or not publish it. But it's nothing like a study that's undertaken that has to be peer reviewed. So people have to, you know, look at it critically and, you know, decide, well, is this data, does this seem reasonable given the methods that they use, so on and so forth. Is it recreatable? Yeah. Is it is it possible to recreate that? And in this case, uh, all it was was a letter. And, you know, as much as and as uh, as trustworthy as the doctor probably was, it was not controlled study. It was simply yeah. an ob it was an observational uh, report that he used, and so and and the Sackler family and Purdue Pharma took that and ran with it and used it 
as if it were a um, fully peer-reviewed published study. Mm-hmm. So, Right, yeah, that doctor you're referring to is Dr. Herschel Jick, mm-hmm. right. um, who's a uh, professor at Boston University, my yeah, alma mater, right. go Terriers. <laughs> but yeah, he was not aware that Purdue Pharma used his letter to the editor as a medical study, mm-hmm. and he was horrified um, that he, he didn't cause the opioid crisis, of course, but it had some devastating effects. I think the another strength of the show is how they demonstrate how hard the two lawyers, they kind of are looked down on sort of as sort of redneck lawyers because the they're from Virginia. Mm-hmm. And, and they, they act that up a little bit. I think especially Randy specifically plays up that backwoodsman That's right. character yeah, his very because yeah. he, I think he knows how effective it is at sort of putting people at ease. Um, but I, it's so effective in the show when they show how hard those two worked mm-hmm. and they kept getting no's and they kept getting like sort of ridden over and steamrolled. But when they finally would get a piece of information, it was like, oh my God, they've worked for years to get this one piece. And finally in a deposition or like a, you know, a personal interview or something like that, they would finally just fight for another piece and then another piece and another piece. So with that deposition with Dr. Jick, it was like, oh, finally, okay. Like we're getting somewhere, you know, they're still building this case. And it's frustrating by the end of the show to know ultimately the the lack of responsibility that the Sackler family had to take legally, specifically, because there is a little bit of fallout. Like they've obviously been, their name has been removed from art galleries and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, ultimately the record shows that they're not like completely responsible for the opioid crisis. Um, yeah. but it's, it's effective that we finally feel like we feel like we're winning right alongside them, even though they didn't get criminal indictments of specific people like Richard Sackler. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. There's nothing better than an underdog story, especially one that's true. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the characters of Randy and Rick are so well-defined and I love how they have, you know, their little quirks that uh, Rick is a born-again Christian who became one in his 40s. And then Randy is that, yeah, he, he, he's a person who hides his intelligence as uh, that's his strength. And he uses that against people. Uh, and both of them don't drink either. And they're, so they're these very straight-edged Quirky. prosecutors. Yeah. yeah. I love how the show really covers all angles. The next thread I wanted to discuss was the the sales rep uh, thread with Billy Cutler, the Purdue Pharma sales rep, who Mm -hmm. slowly uncovers that, hey, this company is pretty shady. They're aware of this massive epidemic, and they're doing nothing about it. In fact, they're exploiting it. So yeah, that character of Billy, played by Will Poulter. What did you think of that whole thread, Pete? So... If I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I see that there were essentially six storylines, right? There was the Sackler family trying to push their drug. There were the, the lawyers who were investigating the marketing and, and use of the drug. And those, those, are the, those are the ones that actually are the most 
true and obviously follow yeah. the the true story the most. And again, we've talked about how the rest of them were kind of con- condensations of other characters. Mm. There's Betsy and following her her tale of addiction. There's Doctor Phoenix, Michael Keaton's character. There's the the story that I don't believe was part of the reality. That was the uh, Rosario Dawson, the Bridget. Well, I can't remember her last name. Davies or no, no Davies. Meyer. Was Bridget Meyer. Yeah. The and then agent. the last one is the one that you're mentioning to coming circling back to that. Were the the sales reps, and that isn't really treated at all in the book. But I think again, the the creators of this did an incredible job of taking all of those stories and you know weaving some of them together and and. Um, in the case of the the sales reps, yeah, just understanding what a sales rep did and what it took in order to market the drug. And obviously what the sales reps cared about was sales, period. And neither did their, um, did their senior, their um, supervisor, yeah. their manager. And that was in the day, as is shown very clearly, when pharmaceutical companies could just shower doctors and pharmacists and anybody with Nurses, gifts, yeah. you know that family that, members of of doctors, which is actually now in guidance that you have to declare right. relationships not only for yourself but also your spouse and children. Yep, that's in guidance now. Just well, but yeah. Sorry to. I'll interrupt. tell you. No, no, that's okay. I'll tell you something that's interesting too about that. Uh, since we're we're discussing that topic, so number one. Pharmaceutical companies can no longer do those types of things. They can't shower you with gifts and so on and so forth. I mean, there are limits to what they can do. But the thing about declarations is really interesting because when you know, I go to scientific conferences somewhat frequently, and whenever you see someone give a presentation, that's their first slide, essentially, after yeah. their name or where they're from or whatnot, a title slide, it'll say. What's interesting always, though, is... And I don't think this is necessarily conscious or whatnot, but when a when a scientist or a doctor puts the, that slide up, it immediately goes away. This, they'll just say, "These are my these are my relationships" or "These are my disclosures," and there may be a list of ten or fifteen things, and it'll just go on and then it'll go off. You barely have enough time, and they won't st- they won't sit there and read. Okay, I'm supported, you know, to some extent by Merck, and I have relationships with this biotech and this biotech. It's just you know, quick, put it up there and get it out of there. Yeah, so, that's funny. Yeah. So anyway, but again, back to your point, Danny. I think it was remarkable because the it was all you know with with the supervisors, the managers, and the sales reps. It was push, push, push. Whatever they yeah. say, they you know it's basically a script. They gave them scripts to talk to the doctors, and of course, if it was a doctor who couldn't care less about what was going on with their patients. They'd take that they and run with it. They created a pill mill. They created pill mills, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yet then there were people like Michael Keaton's character, Dr. Phoenix, who questioned it, but he accepted, he did accept what was being told to him. And Billy was a nice fellow. He developed a relationship with Dr. Phoenix. And, you know, the next thing you know, he's pushing, not pushing the drug, he's giving the drug, he's prescribing the drug. Without knowing... As labeled. As labeled, yeah. And yeah. without knowing the effect it was having. So anyway, I, I thought that was very effective. And if I could go back again too, it, it was interesting that they did include... And I, I sort of get why they included the um, the character that Rosario Dawson played, that she worked really hard to try to do the same thing in a slightly different manner because she worked for the, the DEA. But... 
um, you know, she worked, 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 and got to a point where she just couldn't go any further. And right. and you know, then then of course Randy and Rick came to her and tried to get some help with, from her. And at first, she completely shut them down, just because she had such a sour experience. So I thought it was interesting that they included that in the story. So anyway, but yeah. Um, so I think the benefits. I'm glad that you counted sort of the six perspectives that we get because I think. The benefits of getting all of those perspectives is that we see how efficiently the Sackler family manipulated information and data and people not understanding and just saying, trust not only the doctors who understand the science, but also the FDA who worked to understand things and to tell you that it's safe. And so the Sackler family specifically manipulated the fact that a lot of sales reps do not have scientific backgrounds. And so as much as Billy is a nice guy, he also is parroting what the Sackler family got approved in their label because that's all he knows. He can't have a discussion with Dr. Phoenix about narcotics because they didn't give the sales force that background. They didn't give them that context. And so it was so easy for Billy to just say, like, like, read the label, read the label. This is what FDA approved. So, you know, don't take my word for it. Take the FDA's word for it. Like, it's insane that. So basically what I'm saying is like, it's understandable that Dr. Phoenix would finally come around to prescribing Oxycontin because he was told by what he thought was a reputable, trustworthy source. source that knew more than him that had looked at long periods of data that he didn't have access to, that it was safe and it was okay. Um, So you just get like the different ways that the Sacklers approached and manipulated loopholes to be successful. All for money. We obviously get that. every angle too. It wasn't just doctors. Oh yeah, they covered their ass. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And even if the sales reps were aware, most of them did not care because of the money involved. A great parallel is the Wolf of Wall Street. Many uh, of those Wall Street investment bakers or anyone working in that uh, industry very quickly are showered with wealth and gifts and money. And within a few years, they too were addicted to drugs and involved in many fraud schemes or legal activities. And we see the indifferent sales rep in uh, Philip Sue of Hamilton yeah. fame. One of the few, I would say, miscalculated performances and underwritten characters I was say underwritten. of the series. I would say she's comically snobbish and sardonic, and it's that classic character who flirts with... Uh, the mail and it's a will they won't they and eventually she's like all right I, I guess I like you and they get together that that was one of the uh, failings I would say of of the storytelling one of the few failings of the series agreed yeah I dad I'd be interested to know your perspective on this too from an industry perspective there were some lines that like for example Rosario Dawson would deliver and I was just like that level of knowledge from someone who isn't in the industry wouldn't necessarily understand like the reformulation or, or like quoting the label mm-hmm. was a little unbelievable for me. And there, so there were a couple of, there was another moment where there was a kid who like the, the lawyers show up at this one woman's home whose daughter had died 
and the, the her son is like playing with toys on the ground and he just goes out of the corner he's like mommy was okay until she started taking the pills and then they and then they look at him and they go what pills and he goes oxycontin and i'm like okay this five-year-old yeah <laughs> probably wouldn't be delivering that line so there are a couple strangely undeveloped or underdeveloped moments of writing that kind of bothered me a little bit yeah. um, and it seemed like b writers had given had like submitted a script and then they just filmed it and mm -hmm. i was like there's so much other good stuff. I'll there were just you, some weird moments. Yeah, some unrefined. I'll, I'll tell you one scene that I thought was completely out of place and did nothing to advance the story. That was a scene where Randy, Rick, and Brownlee, their their supervisor, yeah. went to the... Um, and I think it was... I don't know if it was the FBI director or the attorney general. Anyway, they go in and there's this scene about Purdue and he thinks... It's about chicken. Oh, Oh, yes. with uh, the FBI. It was at the FBI director. I think it might have been. Anyway. I just, Comey. Jim Comey. James, Com James yes. Comey. I thought, what is the point of we that scene? We did the same double take where we were like, what are they talking it, about right now? Yeah, is it is a it, joke? Is it at all a joke? Or, I, I don't know. That one, to me, was completely out of place yeah. did nothing to advance the story it's not in the book either it's not, so of course it's not in the book yeah. yeah and yeah so it just seemed like that was unnecessary and yes. could easily easily have been cut now yes. again these are minor because i love the series i thought it was remarkable yes. yes but i'll tell you another one too that and i mean it just sort of maybe it added a little bit to the creepiness of richard sackler's character and that was when his wife decides to go skiing to San Moritz, and then he calls that woman. Yes. And, you know, you it's sort of an implication that they'd had a relationship, but was it while he was married? Was it was before he was married? Because he says it's been a long time. And like I said, other than just adding to his creepiness, but I don't think anybody could expect him to be any creepier than he was. Yes. Right. Yeah. So, I don't know, that was another one. It just was editing. I think you could easily have... Yeah. Remove that scene and the and the chicken scene. Yeah. Um, no, it's anyway. it's interesting because like Danny and I completely agree. We loved the series. There were just some of those moments where we were like, these are long episodes. Yeah. Like just cut some of that fluff because mm -hmm. it doesn't add anything. And in fact, it actually was confusing and took us out of the storyline. Yeah. If anything, it really distracted yeah. from the really important story. So right. I don't know. I have a couple of questions for the for Danny Strong. <laughs> okay, so can we talk talk about him for just a second? Because yes. uh, did you guys do any research on him by chance? Okay, yes, he's an actor. He has a lot of credits in television, in particular, including Gilmore Girls. You remember he was the he was the newspaper editor when they were at Yale. Oh my God! Yeah. How did I not put that together? I love him. Yeah. He's so funny. He's also in Snow, uh, Sydney White. Sydney White, yes. He's so yes. cute. I okay. love him. I completely forgot. He's, he's done another, he actually did another series that he was in Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. That's right. Uh, but anyway, so the other fun facts about him was that, so he grew up in LA, specifically Manhattan Beach. Did you read this part? No. Okay. So when he was a kid, he would frequent a video store, video archives, where Quentin Tarantino worked as a clerk. Wow. And he used to, when he was 10 years old, he and Quentin Tarantino would talk on movies for hours. And Tarantino would recommend movies that most 10-year-olds shouldn't be watching. Okay. But 
that's that's a little fun fact about him. So he was he's been you know interested in movies now. So he went from his acting career into writing screenplays. He wrote screenplays for films including Recount, mm-hmm. which is about the 2000 election between George W. and Al Gore. He actually wrote the screenplay for The Butler, if you can imagine. Okay, you mean the 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 this? I didn't see it, but uh, Lee Daniels directed yes. film about. Yeah. Um, the the man who was was for all the U.S. Yeah, presidents. for all the presidents. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I didn't see that. And he also did the last two Hunger Games films. Oh. Um, damn. As Random. well as <laughs> as well as the TV series Empire, if you can imagine. Huh. He wrote yeah. it. He wrote the screenplays for all of those, huh. and of course, he wrote a lot of the screenplay for Dope Sick, but he also directed, I think, a couple of the episodes. Doyle. Yeah, His name exactly. Is Doyle, Doyle and Gilmore, and Gilmore Girls. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So, wow. Anyway, what a, what those are a, a few things about him. So, what a skilled guy. Right. I yeah. really, I love his acting. But now that I know that I've watched his writing, I'm, I'm really impressed because he's, he's right. great. Yeah. And in AP U.S. History, we watched Game Change, which is a TV movie about uh, when McCain nominated Sarah Palin to be oh. his running mate, and they kind of realized that she was a PR. Nightmare. Uh, nightmare. <laughs> it's funny that years later Trump would come around and then that wouldn't matter if yeah. he would win. <laughs> so it, right. it's it's the effectiveness of that TV movie uh, has been lessened right. through history. Mm-hmm. Um, however, he won an Emmy through that. Yeah, and, that's uh, great. And I remember watching that distinctly. Um, Julianne Moore played Sarah Palin. Mm. Uh, she Indeed. nailed it. Uh, Julianne Moore, yeah, of course. BU alum. Oh, oh there so you go. Second cool. mention of. Boston University, Boston University, go Terriers. <laughs> it's, it's interesting, though, that you bring up in retrospect about Donald Trump, though, because we get a little bit of a insight into where Rudy Giuliani started being a piece of shit. And like, yeah, I, it's, it's so funny how quickly he turned, which is also really reflective of what is important to these people. It's money. Um, because this is fairly soon after 2001, yep. where he was... A god yes. in America. And that's what I knew him as until the Trump era. So I was happy to learn about his slimy past. Yeah. <laughs> um, his turn. Or not happy to learn about it, but it was just very... It made some sense. Yeah. Yeah, to the, yeah, sort of the jump that he made from politics to pharmaceuticals, which again, makes sense if you think about it. Because like, you know, we've talked about this off mic, obviously, but... The draw of pharmaceuticals that's so interesting about them is that they're such a huge gamble. You have to put a lot of money in upfront to develop a drug and the rewards can be high, but the risks are that you lose billions of dollars Mm -hmm. developing a drug that either doesn't work the way that you've developed it or doesn't get approved because it might be something we talk a lot about in the industry is the benefit risk evaluation in terms of safety and efficacy. So you can make a lot of money, but you can also lose a lot of money. And that's why it attracts some kind of weird people into the industry. And really, I think Rudy Giuliani was courted because, or either saw, either was courted or saw an opportunity Mm -hmm. to make Mm -hmm. a lot of money from this company. Um, But it makes sense that this is something like a jump that he would make from politics into the pharmaceutical industry. Yeah, I, I really thought, so one other reason then, allowing a lead in and and more weight on the idea that it was difficult to investigate the Purdue Pharma was the scene where Rosario Dawson meets Rudy Giuliani 
Mm-hmm. And I should use her character's name, Bridget. But anyway, when Bridget meets Rudy Giuliani and she's just in awe of yeah. him, right? And she just can't say enough wonderful things. And then, boom, the shoe drops. And yeah. he goes, well, you know, I kind of wanted to, to talk to you about the Sackler family and Purdue Pharma. They're not that bad. They're really doing some good things. And and she just, you know, her eyes just got big and you just realize, wait a minute. This isn't the person I thought I was going to talk to. Yeah, it's and it's really key too that she literally meets him in front of an exhibit of of uh, 9/11. Mm-hmm. Um he's speaking in front That's of right. this gallery opening of it's I think what it is is it's like it's highlighting governmental assistance during emergency situations because there's a section I was looking at the background of the scene and there's like a section for DEA but specifically, right. he's presenting in front of some scrap metal taken from the two towers. Mm-hmm. And so obviously planting himself in front of his most recent PR victory. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's almost like this, like one of those nightmares where you think you're talking to someone and then you turn around and it's like your enemy or the monster mm-hmm. sort of situation. That, yeah, you that like expect. when it dawns on her that he's on their side... Clearly has already been courted by them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, her face is very revealing. Yeah. Never meet your heroes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Never meet your In heroes. In this case, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would say, I think Bridget's storyline was probably the weakest of the series, in my opinion. Rosario Dawson is a good actress, but her character is a little one note in that she is mad. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, That's how I felt about a lot of the female characters, unfortunately, in this show. Mm-hmm. Right. But uh, Caitlin Dever, though, is incredible. Yeah. And talk about that story because we haven't hit that at all. Yeah. Yeah. As Beth Macy covers in her book, Purdue targeted Appalachia, specifically mining towns where the risk of injury was high. And the lack of education and what led just to... like the, a hard life. And, yeah, and I mean, poor, hard, they're, they're poor. relatively poor. Yeah. Poor, yeah, poor working conditions, poor economy, economy. Yep. Mm-hmm. could lead to a higher addiction rate and in, in use of drugs, which is right. exactly what Purdue wanted. Uh, Targeted. Yeah, and what a sadistic goal. But the mm-hmm. most haunting thing is that they succeeded in those targeted areas. So yeah, Caitlin Dever plays a miner's daughter, coal miner's daughter. <laughs> and, uh, and a miner herself, which yes. I thought was kind of interesting because it yeah. was obviously rare to have young females in the, the industry. Yes, right. Um, yeah, and I know her from Booksmart. She's a great actress mm-hmm. there. She didn't, on the outset, convince me that she was a miner. I don't know. She just doesn't look like it. But very quickly into episode one, I forgot about that Caitlin Denver outside persona, and she really nails the accent. That uh, what is it? The West Virginia, yeah, um, Western Virginia, Appalachia. Yeah. yeah, I think is really what you're yeah. looking for. Yeah, it's absolutely devastating. You know that either Michael Keaton or Caitlin Dever, their characters, you know one of them is going to yeah. die. You, that's just how, with with this many threads, you know they're going to show one addict who recovers, one who doesn't. It was kind of a guessing game, but as in the second half of the series, as Dr. Phoenix gets better, you can feel the impending dread, and you know what's going to happen before 
it happens. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So something, I don't know, Dad, if you were surprised by this, and I'm glad that you didn't spoil it, because I did not see Dr. Phoenix getting addicted at all. That really shocked me. I thought that he was going to be sort of the character that joins the nun, the sister who fights back in mm-hmm. that community. That turns out not to be true. That actually turns out to be his mentor right. that heals his addiction in the best way yeah. that he can. Yeah. So I thought that he was going to be a completely different character. I thought it was strong. It surprised me. And at some points, Danny said that we were pretty sure that one person was going to die. I actually a couple times thought that Dr. Phoenix and Betsy were going to mm-hmm. die because mm-hmm. especially Dr. Phoenix, like they both have emotional inputs that are, you just, you can see that they're struggling with emotional situations that they don't have support for. Mm-hmm. Betsy being gay mm-hmm. and her family is extremely, I, maybe evangelical. I don't know exactly like what sect they are, but they're clearly not very accepting. Very, very uh, Christian fundamental. Right. Yeah. yeah. Homophobic and, and state outright. It would kill me if you came out to yeah. us. Um, and then for Dr. Phoenix, as we mentioned earlier, he has lost his wife. Mm-hmm. And so they they both really, they've like bottomed out emotionally. Yep. And I think that's where I started to see like, oh my God, that scene when Billy goes to visit Dr. Phoenix in rehab and he's just sort of glazed over and you mm-hmm. think he's making an effort, but then he just goes like, do you think you could get me some pills? That's yeah. Devastating. Yeah. And I was like, when he asked for that from Billy, I was like, I think he's going to die. Right. Because you just don't see that either one of them has anything to live for. Right. And so they're in that perfect spot of being an addict that doesn't have anything to sort of fight for or live for. And it's just like, God damn. Like, I thought both of them were going to die. And I'm really happy, though, that we got Dr. Phoenix in the situation that we get him by the end of the show. Like, that's a yeah. really powerful turnaround. Mm-hmm. And I think it also shows the consistent struggle that addicts have. It's not a situation where you just work really hard and then get better. Like, right. you you don't get over this in certain situations. And a lot of situations, you have to continue to take narcotics. Or to the rest of your life. The rest of your yeah. life to stay off Oxycontin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like... It's yep. a yeah, the replacement therapy. Yeah, medically assisted therapy. Yes. Yeah, Suboxone and... Methadone. Methadone, yeah. Mm-hmm. So. I'll give you a quick fun fact there too. So when I was a kid and we had moved to Escondido, so this was in 1969 when I was eight and, and Grandpa had returned from Vietnam, there was a methadone clinic near where we lived. So oh, yeah. we, we lived out in the country kind of and, and even further out in the boondocks there was a methadone clinic, uh, and and at that time, of course, because of the Vietnam War, there were a lot of returning vets who were addicted to heroin. Mm-hmm. And so they were giving them methadone up at this clinic. And, of course, I really didn't have any direct involvement in that. But, but the fun fact here is that uh, your grandma, my mother, she, for a short time, was up there teaching swimming lessons. Because, oh, interesting. Um, that was just, she had been asked to come up there and... But she found, I think, that sadly, a lot of the addicts, even while they were on methadone, they were, they were still kind of zombie-ish because they were just still in the throes of their addiction and trying to... And PTSD. And PTSD. Yep, yeah. yep. And trying to uh, recover from that. So she didn't really have a great experience at that. But that was 
there was a methadone clinic and and completely I think the a couple of things the show did demonstrate I think that medically assisted therapy does work and it's helpful and it's sad that having to use that in order to recover from addiction uh, often puts people in a position where they're not able to recover or to to return to their chosen profession as Dr. Phoenix did until sure. he was off the the MAT he wasn't able to Well I think the the show even suggests that he possibly good point being it was great to see his character arc of coming around to spread it like he finally kind of was able to take responsibility for his role in unfortunately a lot of deaths in his area because he started prescribing oxycodone uh, oxycontin mm-hmm. and he could sort of overcome that overwhelming guilt to help these people get back and forth to the clinic. But dad, to your point, I mean, you said that you lived in the boondocks and that's kind of where these clinics are located because people don't want them in their communities because mm-hmm. it quote unquote looks bad. Yep. Right. Yeah. It's um, a quote from the show. It's, it's mm-hmm. just, it's just stupid, you know, but, but it's really hard for, to get this public to listen to data. You know, it, it's just, it's a tough thing. Um, yeah. That's the most tragic part of it is that even if you try to recover, your brain has been rewired. Mm-hmm. Right. To quote, they make a point of that. Yeah, Dr. Robert Van Zee, who's heavily mm-hmm. featured in the book and doesn't show up in the show until episode seven. And yep. it's just in the, in the final two episodes. I thought that was an interesting choice. But when he finally showed up, I'm like, oh man, that's him. But yeah, yeah so you can be fully committed to recovery. But since your brain is literally rewired, you'll feel like you'll die if you don't have oxycodone. So even MATs sometimes don't work, or if they do work, you'll be on them for the rest of your life. And as Pete, you mentioned, many professions don't allow you to continue working in that profession just because MATs are or can be narcotics. narcotics. Right. No, I think one of the most impactful sentences that's in the whole book and i believe they say it in the show as well but it's about the fact that addicts it can take up to two years just to get back into your body and into your sort of normal brain Mm -hmm. after this rewiring but so many addicts don't have two years yeah it's so and and not only that statistic but also the amount of times that people relapse. We saw that in Dr. Phoenix's conversations with other mm-hmm. struggling addicts, right. that they had been in rehab two, three, four, five times and are still on the path to recovery. But it's tough to tell someone who is trying their best, it still might not work. And and then we sort of get the... Who's, what's the other girl, the young girl that Dr. Phoenix takes to the clinics? Birthmark on cheek girl. Yeah, 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 I can't remember her name, but you're absolutely it's right. Like that's Daisy, how I it's like her. Daisy May or something really yeah. southern. Yeah. But that's how they sort of slide in the the other young girl character mm-hmm. later in the show, um, who who says something like, you know, I'm gonna die now or die later, so like why fucking try, basically. And I mean that's a that's a tough question <laughs> like that people have to face after they've gotten onto this drug that Right, yeah. Might have been prescribed as labeled. Yeah, it's not just that they're addicted. It's that they can't shake their addiction despite active efforts. Yeah. 
all the blame can be directed at the Sacklers. And then as we near the end of this discussion, I finally, we've been teasing him all episode, but Michael Stuhlbarg. <laughs> Mm. We we got to discuss this guy. So yeah. he's currently one of our favorite actors. Laura, oh yeah. Right? I, yeah. Ever since I the first thing I ever saw him in was Call Me by Your Name, and that's a masterpiece uh, right. performance. Yeah, I can word for word perform his monologue at the end of that movie. <laughs> I watch it so. So many times. since I haven't seen that film, what who what character does he play? He plays Timothy Chalamet's father. Ah, uh, okay, got yeah. it. The most accepting because I did hear your father. Yeah, <laughs> I did hear your your pod on that one but i just couldn't remember what his character was i was gonna say the most accepting father other than my own <laughs> no e- even more even more than him um uh, okay but no, he's, so, he's so he had a very big role yeah he had, yes. a, he had oh, a big role yeah he has a pretty, pretty okay. pivotal well role. it's a true supporting performance right, right. in yeah. that he's not a part of the main story but mm-hmm. he literally and figuratively supports his son. Mm-hmm. You realize that he's been watching his son in a different way than you thought he was watching his son. Okay, right. He kind of decodes that he's gay and he's mm-hmm. like... And, you know, and has some words of advice that you might not expect, mm-hmm. um, but are profound nonetheless. Okay. So, yeah. got it, got it. My, the first time I saw him was in The Coen Brothers' A Serious Man, one of their most underrated yeah. films. No one talks yeah. about that, but he's incredible in that. I feel like he's experiencing a renaissance as of late. He was also in The Looming Tower, which came out a few years ago, which is another adaptation of a book. He's a fantastic actor, and his interpretation of Richard Sackler is unique, to say the least, and very singular. But as I stated earlier, it feels like he imitated his voice pretty accurately. Um, I just wanted to share that I, I found out that he studied mime with Marcel Marceau. Oh, I and I, I wonder if that in if that type of like body work went into any of his performance in this because it's very physical. Mm-hmm. It's a really physical character more than I think any of the other people had to take on. And so I wonder if he just was able to like study videos of Richard Sackler and just sort of Mm. picked out some of those things that he was able to put into his performance. I love the way that he, this is super specific, but I love the way that he holds his glasses a lot Mm -hmm. where he kind of uses them as like point, like a pointer. He kind of does this or like the way that he moves his hands is just really interesting. Um, He hunches over. He had his resting face is a distinct frown. frown. Oh my gosh. Yeah. the the voice and that frown that that's one of the and he looks over his glasses yeah kind of like this and he pooches his belly out mm-hmm. a lot like he's yeah, just I think very he was, he was given like a fat suit or a, a pillow to put under yeah. his shirt yeah and, yeah to yeah. get that no very... the, the frown though is right on Tim because every time yeah you would see him his his uh, corner of his of his mouth were turned down yeah he he was uh, he was really good I mean he I guess up until his time in television and film, he was a theater actor, right? Mm-hmm. So he's he's done a lot. So I mean, he's he certainly has the chops, and I think yeah. watching him in this was fascinating. It could be distracting at times because yeah. mm-hmm. of the the what appears to be an affectation, but he just really does an incredible job of of coming in and ruling any room that he comes into to see people. Except in some cases when he really has to face somebody that he might not 
think he has power over or control over. So anyway, uh, great performance. Yeah, it was really good. Again, it's really hard to say what we're picking up on in terms of like the real Richard Sackler or this performance that may have been more or less inspired by mm-hmm. Michael Stuhlbarg's research mm-hmm. into the real guy. Mm-hmm. But I think it's really clear that like, there's a lot that we don't get to know about his allegiances in his family too. Cause mm-hmm. it seems like he's very inspired by his uncle Arthur, not very much by right. his father. Right. So right. I think there's like, it feels like there's a lot of character work that Michael Stuhlbarg did outside of the show that he brought to his like attitudes toward different people. Like for the example, his cousin, Kathy, they have a very interesting relationship you know, whereas like he, him and his father have a very different and contentious relationship, but he still listens to his father when his father says like, distance yourself because people are going to start going down for, you know, what you've been doing. So like, yeah, I just think he's a very nuanced character actor. Yeah, definitely. And if the performance was miscalculated, it could have been catastrophic. Like it could have been a truly a, a farce. No. And honestly, like if you watch this, cause I was watching it from the perspective of like, I just know him very specifically from being like the best movie dad ever. <laughs> um, it's really hard to like see his character and call me by your name in this performance. And I think like that means you've been successful yeah. as an actor, you know, yeah. like you really can't typecast him. Yeah. He's so good at disappearing. And like, yeah, maybe this is a little bit of a caricature performance, but we also hate him. And that's what you're supposed to <laughs> yeah, do. Exactly. Like, right. <laughs> But we can see his internal motivation in that the the way the cinematography is constructed in the show and this show won Best Cinematography. It it deserved it. Yeah, that's one of the two Emmys it won. It Mm -hmm. won for cinematography and then for Michael Keaton for Best Actor Mm -hmm. in the limited series. But they frame it, you know, the Sacklers were a family, are a family of immense wealth. And the spaces they occupy are mm. these expansive mansions and art galleries that many art galleries that had their the Sackler name taken off in 2007 when they had their uh, deposition. What is it? Well, the, the indictments. When they had, them, and yeah. they, then they agreed to make the large uh, payment fine. Right. Yeah. So. He is a man who wants to prove himself within his family, but he also feels very isolated and lonely. And perhaps that is the one reason why they included that scene of him calling his ex-lover. Lover, perhaps. It's yeah. not necessary. We got the point by that uh, yeah. by episode six, I think, when it happens. But yeah, even you know he's married, but he doesn't feel connected to. His wife, he's more interested in progressing the sales of Oxycontin in order to live up to his great uncle's legacy, who's not even alive anymore. Mm-hmm. So he, he feels like he wants to prove himself to his dad and his uncle, but he realizes he'll never be able to do that. Even when he becomes president of Purdue, mm-hmm. it's still not enough for uh, his family. So I, I think they do a good job. At, at no point do you feel sorry for him. Right. Yeah. But he is a villain with dimension. Mm. And it's also a very memorable villain performance because yes. that voice, that look, <laughs> that posture, I mean, uh, what a character, what a person. So mm-hmm. I thought it 
would be the typical type of performance that lands an Emmy, but sadly, mm-hmm. it was only Michael Keaton who took home an acting award. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, since we're speaking of parents, and uh, I would go back to Betsy's parents because we haven't talked too much about them. They had an important role, obviously, because they did their best, the best that they could, to try to steer Betsy in the right direction, obviously with a lot of missteps because, as you stated in the beginning, they were, well, missteps in the terms of her relationships. And she had that scene where she tells her mother that she's gay and and her mother just completely... She looks up and she's like, did you say something? Oh my God. Yeah, that was a very sad um, scene. But anyway, her parents, they do try, you know, they try to help her, especially her mother. Her mother gets her, they do have that intervention uh, they take her to uh, Narcotics Anonymous, where, of course, she encounters somebody who gets her more drugs, which yeah. is pretty wild. Which is in the book. They and it happens. Yeah, yeah, it certainly happens. And then in the end, when after she dies, you know, her mother... Uh, I thought the scene where the, the trooper comes to tell her mother or parents that, that Betsy had died was very emotional. Yeah. yeah. Really, really emotional. And, you know, but then, of course, the dad... Just sort of here, he knows what happened. And he he recognized it, and then he sort of shut down. Um, he was a lot more obviously emotionally uh, challenged. But so it, I think he he eventually probably, but it was sadly after she died. Whereas Betsy's mom Diane was constantly trying to help her daughter, doing everything she could, especially after uh, she realized what a mistake she had made when. Betsy had told her that she was gay. Yeah. yeah. And she, you know, she admitted that she made a mistake and she did everything she could to try to help her. And you said it earlier, Laura, that she undergoes the greatest transformation, I think, of any character. Because in the end, she, well, first of all, she went to the court uh, uh, courtroom when they indicted the, the three executives. But she also, they show her at the very end of the show when they're at the museum and they... They yeah. lay down, and which they... is all in takes place like ten yeah, years later, two thousand nineteen, or is it nineteen? The, yeah, yeah, the protest yeah. was nineteen, but yeah, okay. like, and I think too, like when you think about how little money they have, it's mm-hmm. especially it's an unsaid thing, but for her to be able to like fly or drive to D.C. or drive to New York and like participate in those things, like you have to sort of understand like how much she specifically is showing her love even after her daughter has died. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also sad. I think it shows like the continuing cycle of abuse when we see after the, I think Dr. Phoenix goes back to their house one more time to sort of apologize. Oh, yeah. And you see her dad just like looking out the window, watching Dr. Phoenix drive away and drinking yes. whiskey. Yeah. Like it, it shows what the book also talks about which is that this is not an epidemic that only affects the addicts. Of Mm -hmm. course it affects the people who have lost a loved one, but it also affects them in ways that, you know, like alcoholism. Mm -hmm. And and even the book even talks about families having like a daughter die and then the next day the father dies and then the Mm -hmm. next day the mother dies. And it's just like, it spins out Mm -hmm. because it's just a lot of tragedy to deal with. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I thought that was really effective. Uh, Can I just since you were talking about cinematography earlier, I love the opening, the very first episode. You get an aerial shot of the 
Appalachians and you hear the song that they're playing, which is like an old country song. Yeah. And it just, that and then the contrast of that with the Sacklers' estate. Yeah. Right. And so you constantly see those transitions from Appalachia. And, and I've driven through some of those areas. When I was in graduate school, I would go sometimes from North Carolina to D.C. And there were times where I went to the and took the, the Blue Ridge Parkway. And yeah, those towns are just really... And this was this would have been in the '80s, you know, so it would have been before this. But even in the '80s, the the coal industry was starting to decline, uh, and it actually goes back even further. But especially around that time, and those towns are just very poor, very yeah. very poor. Mm-hmm. And you know, they're in the hills, and and I think they they did a wonderful job of portraying that in the film um, with a lot of those exterior shots. Uh, I thought they did a fabulous job. Definitely, yeah. I think cinematography, exceptional. Lauren Balfe's score, he scored the entire oh, yeah. uh, series. He was not nominated, but I know you were talking about this earlier, Pete, but mm-hmm. incredible, incredible music yeah. throughout. Both the, the soundtrack, but the orchestral the score, score by yeah. Lauren Balfe, who did the score for Mission Impossible Fallout. Mm-hmm. We love that. Yeah. So, good. yeah. And uh, Top Gun Maverick, so... Also okay. brilliant. Yeah, and he's going to do the score for the upcoming Mission Impossible film, Dead Reckoning, Part 1. Can't <laughs> wait for that. Um, the last two shout-outs I wanted to make were to Jake McDorman, who played the prosecutor John Brownlee. So yes. The head of, for Rick. The bosses for Rick and Randy. So yeah. you know what yeah. I kept thinking, Dad? I don't know if you agree with this, but I kept thinking that he looked like John Corbett. It's like I was like, oh my gosh, like is that his son or something? Because I just thought he looked so much like, but no, there's no correlation. Yeah, yeah, but I thought he was very strong, and I haven't seen his work. Yeah. Oh no, yes, we have. I wrote this down. He played Captain Metropolis in that one episode of Watchmen, the black and white episode. No way. Yeah. Oh, interesting. God damn, I'm gonna go back and watch that show. It's so good. Yeah. Um, Interesting. Yeah. I also wanted to shout out Cleopatra Coleman, who plays Betsy's girlfriend. Oh uh, yeah. In the first half. She's so. Uh, She's British. So. I wouldn't have guessed. Yeah, I wouldn't have guessed either. She has a role in this year's Infinity Pool absolutely bonkers movie but it's one of my favorite of the year so far please check out infinity pool it's not for the faint of heart <laughs> yeah. uh, but streaming on Hulu. that was another good role i agree yeah yeah um yeah but we've come to the end final thoughts and final ratings for both the book and the movie pete okay. go ahead uh so one final thought was and i i unfortunately couldn't find the quote in the book I don't think it shows up in the in the series whatsoever. There's a... I thought it was something that came up with uh, either Randy or Rick, but I could be wrong because I... Like I said, I couldn't find it. There's a, there's a quote that I think is attributed to one of our former presidents. But anyway, the, the point is that when things start to go sour, and, you know, in this case, you could say it's the... Drug addiction. Uh, anyway, when things start to go south, oftentimes it's not because of any intention that somebody put out there. And I don't remember if you remember this quote um, at all in the book, but it's usually because of negligence and lost 
interest in something. And I think that's what happened a lot to a lot of these people. Uh, and, and it's obviously this is just one example of that type of thing happening. I don't know. Do either of you remember that quote? That all so. okay. I'll have to I'll have to go back and look it up again because it was a very because I do believe that's true that a lot of times when things go south it's not because somebody's doing something intentional. Now I know that the Sacklers I do believe that from everything that we saw that things started to go south. But for example, Dr. Phoenix, I think you know he just simply didn't he didn't understand and then it was too late before he had sort of nagging understanding because he would say, well, I would never, um, I would never give my patients, you know, 10, 20, start them on 20 milligrams of an opioid or whatever. So anyway, that was one. And actually there was another thing provided I don't lose it. I can't think of, I can't think of the other thing, but anyway, enjoyed, enjoyed both of them. Uh, I do think that they, they certainly had different, well, they both had the same intention to bring to the public's awareness, mm -hmm. the opioid e epidemic. And so with regard to the book, I, I haven't read too many that are quite like this. This was, again, an investigative reporter who took something on. I think, so it's hard, you can't, I don't think you can put it in the context of a, uh, a piece of fiction, but as a, as a book uh, trying to do exactly what it was attempting to do, and that is to bring uh, to our awareness the opioid epidemic, I'd say that was very effective. So I would yeah. certainly give it somewhere between three and four uh, rating. I would give it, I'd probably give it a three and a half out of four rating. Yeah. Um, the series, I would also give a really strong rating. You know, we talked about a couple of flaws perhaps, but I would put it up there in the three and a half to four as yeah. well. Um, I really enjoyed it and, and appreciated the fact that you guys asked me to come and talk about it here. So... Of course. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for coming on as a guest. Yeah. And I if think... this episode does well, we'll invite you on again. <laughs> Low downloads, then yeah. no way. <laughs> but no, to your point, I think that this book goes really well with the show. Like if I were prescribing someone <laughs> to take this, I would, I would say read the book and watch the show possibly after. I don't know. It probably doesn't really matter what sequence you introduce yourself to. Um, in terms of watching or reading first. But I think that the show really does, even from an in industry insider, the show does make a really good, it, it breaks things down really well so that you get more out of the book, I think. Because the book yes. is so data-driven that sometimes it's helpful to take a larger perspective and take a step back and say like, okay, these are the players that pushed XYZ information forward at this time. I think it's real. they go really well as companion pieces. Yeah. I thought that this world felt very lived in. Um, yeah. I thought the, just especially with like the small towns, like those just felt very grimy. Like being in the mines, it was like, I felt like it was very authentic. Yeah. Um, in terms of the set design. Um, the one last thing that I, we didn't really get to touch on was Danny and I, I think at the beginning of the pandemic, or maybe even before, we started watching the show Scrubs. Mm -hmm. And if you want to see how ubiquitous drug branding used to be, go watch Scrubs. Mm -hmm. Because everything that they use and have as props on the show are marketed sure. um, yeah. from different drugs. Um, like my dad said, there's not a lot of that can happen, even in terms of like pens and clipboards. You really can't do a lot of those giveaways. 
But it's interesting to see the difference between what was general like industry standards for doctors. You can see that difference in scrubs, whereas you can't really see that anymore because it's not... And it's, it's, such a, it's such a niche thing to be aware of, but it's kind of cool to see in Scrubs that it was so ubiquitous. Yeah. That it just, it yeah. made like a sort of series regular show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's just kind of, a, you can see the difference. I would say for the book, there were some times where I really dipped in focus. So maybe three out of, 3.5 out of four stars for me and three and a half for the show because overall I really loved it. But there were just some like, quirky little things that stood out to me that weren't didn't make it perfect but oh but very strong show that i would probably re-watch in a few years yeah it's almost worse that way that the show is so close to perfection but there's (laughs) just a a few things that need to be tweaked but i would re-watch it just for michael keaton's character like he's he's so subdued but also like very nuanced like he's just a great actor smart actor understood the assignment Mm -hmm. and executed (laughs) yeah Definitely. Yeah, the book, despite it being very important, and I recognize this importance, is not something that can gel in my wavelength. Uh, so I would nod off frequently, and I listened to it, and uh, I kept on having to go back, and uh, I listened to the majority of it on a, a road trip uh, that we made together, and uh, I basically got nothing out of that because I was just, I kept finding myself looking at the (laughs) the beautiful California uh, landscapes. So I had trouble retaining information, and that's a me problem. I understand that. So it's tough for me to rate the book in general. To say two and a half out of four isn't an accurate representation of the book's quality. It's more of how I interacted with it. But the show, I think, managed to be both incredibly informative, but also accessible. And that's what I appreciated most about it. It was very accessible with this Herculean task of taking on six storylines uh, within eight episodes. I, I thought it was pretty uh, compelling and profound. So, yeah, I would go three and a half out of four. For the show. For the show. Nice. Yep. All right. Another one in the bag. Season finale of season nine. Oh boy. Whoa. Thanks, Pete, for coming on. Yeah. Uh, it's been too long, so hope to have you on again. This is the season finale. So season 10 will be back in a few weeks, and season 10, drum roll please, is our season on summer blockbusters. Oh, Cannot yeah. wait for oh, that. Boy. And it's going to contain our 100th episode celebration. Right. We're almost up to 100. So look forward to that. But we're going to take a little break in the interim to prepare for that season. we got a lot of work ahead of us, but we do it gladly. We love doing this podcast. All right, team. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next one.